Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. Astounding Science Fiction Magazine was at the top of its game in the 1930s and 40s, with John Campbell at the helm as editor. He had a star lineup of writers, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and the stories were getting more and more sophisticated. Some months, the tales in Astounding were about machines from the future. Other months, they were about haunting nuclear explosions. As World War II raged on in Europe, their fiction was increasingly relevant and cutting edge. No wonder Astounding was picking up more readers, and not just young sci-fi nerds, but grown-up ones, actual working scientists. Campbell stuck another pin in the map on his office wall. He loved keeping track of how far and wide his subscriptions were spreading. One pin stood out from the others. It was all the way across the Atlantic in Sweden. Each month, the latest copy of the magazine was shipped to a subscriber there. But the subscription was in a fake name, and when it arrived, it would be slipped into a pouch, then transported out of Sweden and over to Nazi Germany, where it would be placed in the eager hands of a man named Werner von Braun. Who was this man, von Braun? He was a scientist who grew up in Germany in the 1900s, and the Nazis had chosen him to be their chief rocket engineer. The part of his story more Americans know, though, is what would come later, after the war. Von Braun eventually defected to the United States to build the kind of rockets he really cared about, Rockets that could send humans to the stars. In some circles, Von Braun is celebrated as a hero of the Apollo story, both because he designed the Saturn V rocket that launched Apollo 11 to the moon, and because he got Americans excited about space through magazine articles he wrote and Disney TV shows he hosted in the 1950s and 60s. But I had an inkling his legacy was more complicated, and that understanding it would unlock the next chapter in why we went to space. So I set off across DC to speak with an expert, Mike Newfeld. Mm -hmm. Mike is senior curator for the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, but he also spent years of his life researching and writing a biography of Werner von Braun. Um, I'm probably do I'm saying his name wrong? Von Brown, Brown, Brown. Brown. Mm-hmm. So maybe yeah. you could just start off with who Von Braun is and why we care about him. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever <laughs> tried to reduce it to two sentences. That's a that's a challenge. He is the most important 
rocket engineer and space advocate of the 20th century. He was a man famous in his day, but he faded fairly quickly after. This is a man so crucial to the American dream of space, so influential that Mike would spend years and years of his life studying him. And yet, not only is he mostly forgotten today, but even Mike, who has a stronger interest in him than most, doesn't really like him. I saw that, um, I mean, I haven't been there yet, but I, I read that his grave is in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. I was thinking I'd go. I went there and visited once, and I have to tell you, I, I just, it, uh, it, it didn't stir a lot of emotion in me. I mean, I, I always felt ambivalent about Fiona von Braun. I didn't hate him, but I didn't love him. I never could sort of forgive him for his Nazi opportunism and for his role in the Third Reich. So, so I remain conflicted and ambivalent about Benefin Brown. Did it not shift in any way when you finished writing your book? Um, I think over time... The more evidence I've seen indicates to me that he was even more more of a Nazi than I thought he was. Von Braun is a very polarizing figure. Everybody either thinks he's a hero or a villain. You know, it's very simple to make him black or white. You know, he's not black or white, nor is he gray. He's, he's, a, he's a colorful mixture, but he, to me, is, remains a problematic hero. Uh, he's not my hero because he's just, it's just too problematic. So problematic, so hard to embrace, so much blood on his hands. He was the enemy America said it was fighting against. But somehow the U.S. government and the country as a whole was basically willing to overlook that history, to erase it even. Von Braun wanted to erase it too, it seems. He shifted his life's work from war to spaceflight, and he pulled the United States along with him. But it wasn't some simple journey from darkness to light, from destruction to exploration, for Von Braun or for America. Even during the height of the space race, he and the country could never fully leave that dark past behind. Here's Satire of Von Braun, performed by Tom Lehrer in the 1960s. Gather round while I sing you of Werner Von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedients. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Ah, Nazi schmazi, says Werner Von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. Dr. Werner von Braun, Director for Development operations of the Army Ballistic Missiles Agency. 
Dr. Von Braun, would you rise, please? This uh, example will show that uh, uh, you need not believe everything you hear and read. von Braun's story is twisting and dark and really hard to wrestle with. I mean, he's a former Nazi. But he's also a visionary scientist who deserves a lot of credit for getting America to the moon. And those are hard things to reconcile. I'm going to take you through the story of how he ended up in America. I actually looked through his old FBI files, and I'll tell you all about what's in there later. But before we do that, let's get the backstory on Werner von Braun from Mike Neufeld. Do you think for a moment you could paint a, a portrait of him, like physically a portrait so a listener could picture him? Um, he was very tall, blonde, blue-eyed, extraordinarily good-looking. And then also just in terms of his character, how outgoing or... Uh, He was very charismatic in terms of going into a room and everybody turned their eyes on him, very much able to work a room, be charming, convincing the listener that what he or she was saying was the most important thing he'd ever heard. We've all met someone like this before, someone who seems, even from a young age, to be on a mission, almost too charismatic. This was von Braun. When they created the German Rocket Center in 1937, he was already a commanding figure, even though he was only 25 years old. You heard that right. By 25, he was somehow already the chief engineer of the German military's rocket program. Could you tell me just a bit about sort of his backstory, his childhood, what you think is important to know about that part of his life? Well, von Braun actually was a Prussian baron. Grew up mostly in Berlin in the 1920s. But here's the thing. He was not your typical high-class Prussian noble. He was very interested in technology, engineering, making things with his hands. He uh, got a uh, telescope from his parents for his Lutheran church confirmation at age 13. And, you know, traditionally you would get something like a gold watch in the upper class, but his mother was a nature enthusiast and she wanted to encourage his interest in in, in nature and astronomy. It worked. And he said, it filled me with a romantic urge, not just to look at the moon and planets through a telescope, but actually go out and explore the mysterious universe. I knew how Columbus had felt, he said. Not only did he fall in love with looking at the stars, But shortly after getting the telescope, he picked up an astronomy magazine. It was around 1925. He was a young teenager. And he since said that picking up that magazine was a defining moment in his life. Because in it was the story of an imaginary trip to the moon. It awakened his mind and also something deep in his soul. 
It reminds me so much of John Campbell seeing ball lightning or Robert Goddard climbing up a tree. They felt a glimpse into the cosmos, a pull toward the unknown and the uncharted. He wanted to go into space. He wanted to go to the moon. His dream was to land on the moon. So he became fascinated with rocketry and space flight. He studied science and math in the late 1920s and early 30s, motivated by this dream of going to space. He was a research assistant for a German scientist named Hermann Oberth, And Oberth was basically the Robert Goddard of Germany. But they weren't actually building rockets to go to the moon. Von Braun was basically forced to parlay his rocket research into building missiles for the military. I thought that we were just completely broken. If we wanted to continue anything, we had to accept it. This is archival audio of Von Braun. Yes. So von Braun started out working for the German army with just one mechanic. So it was a very humble beginning. But he slowly accrued more and more people. Then the Nazis came to power in 1933, and he stayed on. His rockets were gaining attention inside the regime. And uh, it was a spectacular success. And so the incredible thing happened. His program got more and more money. Yes, uh, as a result, we got 11. 11 million marks. That's equivalent to $80 million today. His rockets got more and more complex, like his A3 rocket. That uh, was a completely gyroscopically controlled rocket with jet vanes. And then he test launched a rocket called the V2. On the 3rd of October, 1942, finally, with a full success, and traveled over... uh, I think 120 miles or so. The United States had by then entered the war. The Allies were putting more and more pressure on Germany. And Hitler saw that von Braun's new missiles had the potential to give the Nazis a final destructive advantage. Was summoned to Hitler's headquarters in East Prussia. Von Braun described Adolf Hitler's reaction in a different recording. And uh, he said, uh, uh, we think uh, we have something pretty uh, formidable here, and ordered immediately the highest uh, priority to put this into the quantity production. Now, let's pause here. I am not someone who ever thought I'd be interested in weapons history, but this is fascinating to me. Rockets had not been a high priority for any country's military until von Braun came along. The focus had been much more on guns and bombs, planes that could drop bombs. But von Braun and his team had taken the concept of a rocket, which is really just anything that can shoot off with a propellant, and they had dramatically reimagined it. Goddard's first liquid-fueled rocket roughly a decade earlier had been about 
11 feet tall, weighed only 30 pounds, and shot 41 feet into the air before coming back down a few seconds later. But Von Braun's V-2 rockets were nearly 50 feet tall. They carried a couple thousand pounds of explosives. They could go 50 miles high, and they could be guided to land on a target. This was a revolutionary breakthrough in technology to make a rocket this gigantic, fly at supersonic velocity, loft itself, throw itself essentially, you know, for, for nearly 200 miles and crash on an enemy's city. Toward the end of the war, Germany launched these rockets on cities across Europe, including London, Paris, Antwerp, and they killed thousands of civilians. Bringing unprecedented death and destruction, the V-2 came perilously close to changing the outcome of the war. Uh, the V-2 is actually a propaganda name given to it by the Nazi propaganda minister in 1944. Uh, vengeance weapon number two. This was Von Braun's creation. You can see how this was the kind of technological leap that could set us up for one day getting to space. But it's important to remember that right now, that's not at all what it's being used for. What he's developed is being used purely by the Nazis for war. I wanted to know how that sat with Von Braun. Like, in these sort of early years, do we have a sense of, like, does he have an interest in these military applications of what he's doing? Or were you getting at that this is kind of the only outlet to do the work that yeah, he wants to do? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I guess he never really found it a contradiction that he was simultaneously working on something that was for the nation and for the army and would lead to space travel later was never for him a conflict. And the indications are that although he had no particular inclination towards Nazi ideology, at least in terms of the racist, um, anti-Semitic dimensions of Nazi ideology, he didn't seem to have much of a problem with the Nazis either. You know, he'd effectively sleepwalked into a Faustian bargain with the Third Reich that will give you as much money and power as you want if you build rockets, but if you do it for our purposes and if you do it our way. And so he did. He did it their way. But what did this mean? What did it look like for von Braun to essentially sell himself to the Nazis in exchange for his dream of getting to work on rockets? Was he complicit in genocide? Was he less than just a problematic hero? Was he actually a villain? This is where things get really difficult. First, we now know this was hidden from the American public for a long time, that Von Braun became an SS officer. SS being the Schutzstaffel, the security and surveillance division of the Nazi party that was responsible for killing millions of people during the Holocaust. 
Now, he was asked or pushed into becoming an SS officer in the, in, in the spring of 1940 and was told it was honorary and he didn't need to be active, though I've had a talk to other people who said that, yeah, well, he was obliged to go to a, a monthly meeting, although he only maybe only showed up once or twice a month. On the other hand... I interviewed another person who said that they came into his office to visit him on some technical matter and saw his SS uniform hanging on, on, the, on the closet there. So still today, we honestly don't know how actively or willingly Von Braun embraced his SS status. Was it just forced lip service to the Nazis? Even so, does that exonerate him? One thing we do know from the extensive research of scholars like Mike Neufeld is where Von Braun worked on his rockets. And that means we know what he must have seen. It was a hell on earth. At a certain point into the war, some of Von Braun's rocket work needed to move underground so that the Allies couldn't spot and bomb the facilities. And this uh, was the direct reason for Hitler ordering the entire production to go underground. So what came out of it was a decision to use some tunnels that existed in north-central Germany. And those tunnels became rebuilt as a, something called the Mittelwerk, the, the central works. The SS imported large numbers of concentration camp prisoners, originally all from Buchenwald, which was not far away. And, and they began retrofitting the tunnels. The conditions were catastrophic. The working conditions there were absolutely horrible. The sanitation, the lack of food, the cold, the lack of sleep was causing a huge death rate among the prisoners. Bring a pretty hellish environment. So there's approximately 3,000 prisoners die of this sort of uh, disease and starvation. Another 3,000 are, are basically shipped off to their deaths in other concentration camps. And Von Braun was there. He saw the conditions. I saw the uh, middle work several times. Could he have done something? That's a good question. He's certainly part of a system that's you know, exploiting prisoners in a murderous way. But just when you might feel like Von Braun is completely in the pocket of the Nazis, I want you to consider this event in 1944. He was arrested by the German Gestapo. The reason? He and two other engineers allegedly got drunk and spoke loosely at a party and something about Germany was going to lose the war and they would rather build a spaceship. And that, um, mm-hmm. that Von Braun had said he, like, he would rather just be working on building well, a spaceship. Is that what you mean? After a couple of drinks, I made the remarks we never meant to develop the weapons of war, but we wanted to fly to the planet. This is the hard part to evaluate in this evidence. They talked about the fact that Germany was going to lose the war, which in a Nazi context was dangerous in itself. Uh, that was defeatism. And they talked, and there was something about, you know, they'd rather build a spaceship. 
in vino veritas? So, you know, this is just the fascinating complexity of this guy's relationship to the Third Reich. He's simultaneously a victim and a perpetrator, I think. And he is simultaneously a Nazi believer in some ways, and in other ways, somebody who was just an opportunist trying to get himself ahead because he believed in rocketry, because he believed in rocketry as a way to space travel. It turns out that at basically the same time as von Braun was being interrogated in Germany by the Gestapo, March 1944, our science fiction editor of Astounding, John Campbell, was being interrogated in America by the FBI. That's quite true. This is archival audio of John Campbell, the architect of modern science fiction. Hmm. Depends on what you mean by modern. The latest issue of Astounding Science Fiction had come out. And inside the issue was a story that set off alarm bells for the U.S. government. The story by Cleve Cartmill, titled Deadline, had a description of the arming mechanism of the uranium bomb that was more accurate than anything that appeared anywhere. Now, just to be clear, Deadline was a fictional story. It took place on a made-up planet. But it gave this really detailed description of what it would look like to develop an atomic bomb. Well, when that appeared on the stands, the Pentagon sort of blew its stack because it looked as though someone had really been blowing his mouth off. The sci-fi story caught the government's attention because at that very same moment in time, the U.S. had a top-secret program underway called the Manhattan Project. It was building the first atomic bomb in a secret lab in the desert of New Mexico. In fact, many of the scientists working on the bomb were readers of Astounding magazine. Had one of the scientists leaked classified information about it to Campbell and Cartmill? They could not allow anything like that to come out. So they naturally did some fast investigating. What was really concerning to the FBI was that the scientific details in the story were eerily specific. What bothered them was that we uh, had described it with great accuracy. I mean, the story described that U-235 was the key isotope needed for the reaction, which was true. It also had paragraphs like this one, which gave a pretty close description of how the bomb worked and what it looked like. So, let's see, like um, this one. Okay, so here it says, two cast iron hemispheres clamped over the orange segments of cadmium alloy. And the fuse I see it is in, a tiny can of cadmium alloy containing a speck of radium in a beryllium holder and a small explosive powerful enough to shatter the cadmium walls. Now, of course, those details might not have been entirely accurate, but the point is... The government read these words and worried that Campbell and Cartmill had insight into this top-secret project. 
While von Braun and the Germans were busy developing ballistic missiles, this was America's big scientific push during the war, a bomb that could wipe out large swaths of the Earth. The secrets, as far as the U.S. government was concerned, could not be made public. So in no time, an FBI agent was at the door of Campbell's Manhattan office. saying, who told you this? This is Kimbriel Kelly. Um, Well, thank you so much. She was part of the Post team that won a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. And I needed her help trying to track something down. Okay, so here, there are sort of two big things I'm trying to get. The FBI files on Werner von Braun, who was a rocket scientist. He came over from Germany. Okay. Um, I'm also hoping to get FBI files on... John Campbell, Cleve Cartmill, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, maybe L. Ron Hubbard, um, who are all science fiction writers who are all dead. Okay, because that's the big caveat, right? Either they have to be you, I think, or either not alive. So Yeah, they're all dead. They're all dead. Okay, this would be interesting. Have you tried looking? Um, I haven't tried anything um, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I would actually open up a web browser. Okay. And... Um, so there's an FBI archive. There's a bunch of, like, government agency archives. I wanted to see if I could find any details about the FBI's visit to John Campbell's office or any other information on what the U.S. government was tracking about these sci-fi writers. Okay, now you're, you've got the bug. You're looking for <laughs> She's like, wait, I want to look up them all. Okay. All of them now. Sorry, I'm paying attention. <laughs> okay. We dug into the files, and here's what we found. The counterintelligence agent who went to John Campbell's office described him as, this is a direct quote, something of an egotist. He also recommended in the file that Campbell and Cartmill remain under surveillance, but he noted that it didn't look like anyone had actually leaked classified information to Campbell. The answer is quite simple. It appeared that Campbell and his writers had simply been astute. Egotistical, as the investigator noted in Campbell's file, but astute. They seemed to have a keen sense for where the latest science was heading. The advantage of the science fiction writer was that he didn't have to build the hardware. He just expressed what could be done. And he came to exactly the same conclusions the physicists had. He had the right answer. And because he didn't have to build the hardware... We got the story published a couple of years before they were ready. Still, the investigator left with a word of warning to Campbell. Stop publishing stories about an atomic bomb. I think this meeting was crucial for Campbell. By the time that investigator left his office, Campbell must have suddenly known his own intuition was right. 
that America was in fact developing an atom bomb for use in the war. And you have to wonder whether that gave him a feeling of power, a sense he could predict the future. I went back to science fiction expert Alec Neville Lee to talk with him about this. Campbell's program for science fiction wasn't just a form of entertainment, but almost as like a way to kind of teach readers how to think about the future and how to think about change. The deadline story was particularly spot on. But even before that story, Campbell had published a bunch of other stories about the possibility of nuclear war. As early as 1941, he wrote an opinion piece warning about nuclear radiation fallout. That same year, he also published a story by Robert Heinlein, which was about America trying to build a nuclear weapon that would end World War II. So long before there is public acknowledgement of the atomic bomb, science fiction is, is talking about this. That we'd been doing for a decade or more. So you can just imagine this corrosive fear of nuclear bombs slowly eating away at the back of Campbell's mind for years. And now, he steps out of his office on that cool March evening in 1944, the interrogation over, the FBI agent gone. Walking the streets of Manhattan at twilight, Campbell must have shuddered with the thrill and terror that his prediction had just been unintentionally confirmed. America was making an atomic bomb. And there was a good chance they were going to use it. Meanwhile, back in Nazi Germany, Werner von Braun had also been released from his interrogation by the Gestapo. I mean, it was really a dangerous situation, I believe, in retrospect. Salvaged from that by the intervention of the armaments minister and saying, we need him. If we're ever going to get that rocket to actually work, we need him. And so I was finally released. Uh, with Don was actually personally vouching for my reliability. Von Braun poured himself into the rocketry work again, but he couldn't escape the thought that Germany was going to lose the war. Von Braun knew his ballistic missiles were way more advanced than the rockets developed anywhere else in the world. And he knew that as the war reached its final blows, other countries would be on the hunt to capture him. That is, if the Nazis didn't kill him first to bury his secrets. He sees that the war is going to be coming to a disastrous end. And the question is, how do we get ourselves out of this? Von Braun started contemplating what to do. Troops were drawing in all around him from every side, even from the sky. It was now May 1st, 1945, six days before Germany would officially surrender. Von Braun's factories were crumbling in British air raids, His labs were being looted by the Soviets. And he and some of his key scientists were sitting at the top of a mountain in Bavaria, in a ski resort, waiting out the final days of the war, thinking they're so valuable, which they kind of are, that the choice of what to do now 
is up to them. One of the Germans allegedly said, you know, we despise the French. We don't think the British can afford us. We're mortally afraid of the Soviets. That kind of leaves the United States. They had heard rumors that American troops weren't too far off. So they decided to send von Braun's younger brother, who was one of the scientists, down the mountain on a bicycle to give news to the Americans that they would surrender. And he goes down and he runs into this guy from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And, and he has this kind of primitive German conversation. It says the leaders of the V2 are sitting on top of the mountain and they want to see General Eisenhower. And so, so the next morning they go down the hill in a convoy and surrender to the U.S. Army. Uh, Did they meet Eisenhower? No. No. I mean, this was in some ways their arrogance and delusion that they could go directly to the leadership of the Allied Army. And they were had to be somewhat disillusioned with their, of their arrogance about, about how important they were or they were that important. Did America want these Nazi rocket scientists? Yes, absolutely. Did they want to tell the American public about it? Absolutely not. The U.S. War Department didn't even tell President Truman. As the Soviets and the French and the British rushed into the rubble of Hitler's collapsing regime, these German Nazi engineers were secretly smuggled out to America. From the FBI file on von Braun, it's clear the U.S. government knew a lot about his Nazi past, even his SS status. But the documents show that they decided, despite all of this, that it was worth bringing him over to the United States anyway. Von Braun would no longer need to have a copy of Astounding smuggled to him. He was on his way to America, the land of science fiction. A couple months later... At 8.15 in the morning of August 6th, Japanese time, the first atomic bomb struck an enemy target. A bomb dropped on Japan. John Campbell woke up the next morning to this headline in the New York Herald Tribune. Atomic bomb revolutionizes war. Hits Japan like 20,000 tons of TNT. There it was. His science fiction stories had become real. The United States had made an atomic bomb that could decimate the Earth. Campbell knew it was the end of one war and the beginning of the next. On the next episode of Moonrise... We go behind the Iron Curtain to meet the mystery man who will send the Soviets to space. is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the work of producer Bishop Sand, editor Dennis Funk, 
project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Subscribe to Moonrise wherever you listen to podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You can also find it on the Washington Post site at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. Many thanks to the wonderful guests on this episode. Mike Newfeld is a senior curator at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of Werner Von Braun, Dreamer of Space, Engineer of War. Alec Neville Lee is the author of Astounding, and Kimbrielle Kelly is now an editor with the Los Angeles Times. Archival recordings for this episode come from the Commonwealth Club of California, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's collection, Fred Lerner, Tom Lair, and DR2 of the Danish Broadcasting Corporation. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with Chapter 4. And then you left Pinamina when? Um, in January 1945, the, uh, uh, the war situation had developed to a point where the Russian armies had already crossed the Vistula River and were in the eastern part of Pomerania. And at night we could already hear the guns yeah. uh, about 100 miles away or so. Yeah. And at that point, it was pretty evident that uh, if we wanted to get out there before the Russian armies moved in, we had to move fast.